It's a new year, and for many of us in the dairy goat world, it's the start of kidding season. On this most recent episode of Goat Gab, Cameron and I discuss all things related to that glorious time of year, kidding season, with a little help from Catherine, our unexpected but very welcome guest. Join us. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Goat Gab. Uh, we are up to number 16 this week, which is kind of exciting, and so glad to have you. Um, I'm Laura. And I'm Cameron, and I'm excited to be back. And I can't believe we've been doing this 16 uh, episodes now. I know. It's been fun, though. I look forward to it every week. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about what's happening on the farm, though. Laura, let's let's chat. We had a little pre-chat beforehand, but let's what's going on with your farm? Well, um, so I think, as I said last week, uh, last Saturday, um, Elizabeth and I pulled blood on everybody and um, got 100% back, um, CAE test back negative. So, you know, it's always it's always a relief to me when I see that because I'm, you know, we try to be pretty particular with our biosecurity and so forth. And, um, you know, everybody has a different way of looking at things, but that's just something that we do each year before we kid. So it's always good to, to get that back. So, um, well, that's great. Congratulations, Laura. That's always a big deal for, for people. And, uh, that's something to be very proud of. Well, you know, for me and I, you know, being old as dirt, as my kids tell me, um, you know, and having lived through those days where, uh, CAE infections were so devastating for, um, animals. Um, you know, there was nothing worse than having a beautiful young doe. And by the time she was three, she was almost crippled and golf ball sized knees and a hard udder. And, and I, you know, I'm glad that we've moved away from that. And I also know, um, you know, the way that, that, uh, we do things on my farm, I just need that, that extra assurance there. So it's, it's always good to get that, get that back and, um, have done pedicures on everybody. So, um, you know, before they get too big with kids, we don't start kidding till March. So it's nice to, to know that, especially the older, really heavy ladies, they're going to be doing okay for their last couple of months, um, you know, before they get too big. So, uh, that's about it on the farm. Um, my, my human job is, um, you know, as I've said before, I'm an OB nurse. And so, um, we are starting to see COVID babies. We just kind of figured it up the other day. Um, we're seeing the results of people not being at work and not practicing social distancing. So we've got a big baby boom. <laughs> so nobody has named their children COVID or Corona yet. And I, you know, I kind of wondered if we might get something like that, but um, you never know. Anyway. Time, time will tell on that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just about it here. How about you guys? Um, not, re not really a lot here. Again, uh, my, my job is taking me away from the farm, uh, this week and didn't really get to spend a lot of time on it there. We hauled some hay, um, on Sunday and that was pretty much all of our excitement there. Um, we finally got our blood results back. So just like you were a hundred percent CAA negative, we were a hundred percent, um, positive on all of our does being bred. So, Yay! um, that was good. good. So our, all of our farm is bred except two uh one zealot our older our older alpine i think she'll be 12 this year 12 Catherine's shaking her head yes she's in the same room so she jumps on don't be surprised listeners here first uh appearance by Catherine. this um figure in my life that i talk about that i never uh, that never talks about and uh never 
uh, rears her voice. So that might be exciting. So that's exciting there. Her and then another older doe that we um, just had some issues with and whatnot. So she's not bred either. So everybody's bred. We're pretty excited. That's wonderful. It's a That's a nice relief to have. Yes. So by the time this episode is released on Tuesday, we should have babies on the ground. So that's exciting. We have uh, some does filling their ut- udders. They were our lap AI uh, candidates as well. So we will um, see that come to fruition. Always exciting to make a plan and see if it kind of works out and then see if um, our all of our dreams and uh, goals of the breeding uh, meet our expectations. Cameron, are these lap AI babies out of sires that you've had kids out of before? Um, one, yes. Our sable, yes. Um, kind of a repeat breeding of kind of, you know, we talked about kind of copycat breeding, kind of a copycat breeding uh, of some of our stuff in the sable side and the alpine side. Um, no, we haven't had anything out of this sire yet, but we thought it would be cool because it would tie in some of um, our older lines and stuff that kind of our one of our, I call them a partner herd, um, somebody that uses a lot of the same genetics as us, um, uses and it's a son from their herd and they had done some good stuff with uh, crossing them with Americans on this sire. So uh, really excited to see kind of what comes to it with it. That is going to be so cool. Yes. Um, And the last thing that's kind of been on my mind is I've been sending out, if you're friends with me on Snapchat, um, I've been sending out um, some, some deep thoughts, actually asking some, not necessarily hard questions, but some deeper questions to some of my friends and kind of picking their brains on it here. And one of the questions I had uh, for you and and Laura, we might be able to talk about here is what constitutes a breeding program? What, you know, people say, oh, I have a farm or I have some goats, but you know, do they really have a breeding program? Do they have a plan in place? Hmm. That is a deep thought from Cameron Handy. I mean, from Cameron Jablowski. So interesting. (laughs) Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, just just some things that, you know, my friends to think about or some things that I've been doing mostly while I'm driving and I'm thinking, okay, what can I, what can I, you know, challenge myself or challenge my friends to think about when it comes to goats? Um, Also, you know, engaging in some conversations about some hard questions um, that I, that, you know, we've been talking about as well. And just really thinking about things um, when we and Catherine and I, um, break apart, start our own farm here um, within the next 16 months, right? 16 months. Yes. So I I guess a a short answer that just kind of comes to mind, I would guess in order to have a breeding program, you have to have breeding goals, right? Yeah. Yes. Because if you're just breeding just haphazard, that doesn't seem like much of a program, but I don't know. I'm going to think on that a little bit more. Maybe we'll have to We'll have to hit that in another podcast. Yeah. Yes. I had one person say that one goat with a plan constitutes a breeding program because you can have like 40 goats, but if you just turn the buck out and just say, go hog wild on them, um, you know, that's, that's great. Um, but it's not really a plan, but if you have, you know, and I, I, some of them said like 20 goats. So, um, you know, with a plan and some different sires and whatnot, and maybe using AI. So what, what constitutes a breeding program and having that mm. plan? So that's the, that's the one thought to think about um, as you are thinking down the road. I would say to our listeners, if you have some thoughts on that, respond on our um, Goat Gab Facebook page or, you know, let Cameron or myself know and uh, we'll try to include that when we when we get around to discussing that. 
Yes. Yes. That's a good, that's a good question. That's a good question just to get some engagement there as well. So yeah, Cameron's deep thoughts of the day. Um, if you want, you can try to find me on Snapchat. I don't know if I'll add you, but um, yeah, if you want some deep questions and deep thoughts, uh, let me know. Add mm. me on Snapchat. Might have to do that. I might have to get on Snapchat for that reason. <laughs> yes. Yes. Laura, looks like we have some ad good news. Yes. So I'm really excited. Um, District 5 for like, I think the first time since maybe the early 2000s, it looks like we might get to have a convention here in District 5. Didn't, was it Texas? I don't remember when Texas was. I think I was in the Dallas. That's 16, 2016. Texas had, had the convention. They're in D5, yeah, right? I, uh, I don't think Texas is. I don't, I'm going to have to look. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. Um, I know that. Yeah. I think they had it in Kansas city, maybe back in 2005, maybe. Hmm. I don't know, but um, the Green County group down in Oklahoma, a shout out to Yolanda Burton and, and her crew down there. They put on some pretty awesome shows in the spring, and uh, they've put together a really neat proposal for the 2023 convention in Tulsa. So um, that's gone out for a postal ballot. So I sure hope it passes. That would be just really exciting to have it over in our neck of the woods. Yeah, and something to look forward to to 2023, um, where we'll be definitely post-COVID. So hopefully. Yeah, yeah, man, <laughs> we can hope so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it looks like uh, we also had some updates from kind of from the directors from the task force for the linear appraisal. And they submitted their report. Um, and now they're waiting for the EC's decision and the board of directors before the board of directors, um, before they release information. Yeah. I know we're all kind of waiting on pins and needles for that. I did see some, some side conversation from one of the directors who's also an appraiser there, um, who had said they was very good work. Um, it, it was very positive and the, and the direction was moving in a positive manner there. And I think, um, those, some of those comments are on the Facebook. Boy, so. that's, that's reassuring. Cause I think, you know, some of us were, we're, we're sure hoping for positive and, uh, hope that, that it got, does get to happen and eager to see what it looks like. So um, yay to all the people who've put a lot of hard work in on it. Cause I know that it's, it's truly a, a thankless job in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, eager to, eager to see what comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah. It should be, should be, uh, interesting nonetheless. Uh, and well, hopefully there'll be a program because like, like we've talked about or, or some of the other podcasts have talked about, um, it is what makes the association a little different and offering this, this unique program for sure. Yeah, so that seems like that on the Adga news front. I haven't really seen anything super um, controversial or, or new or talking worthy really on on Facebook as well. So kind of a slow week. Wouldn't you agree? Yes, and I think you know it's it's after the first of the year, people are just kind of hunkering down, getting ready for kidding and and all of that. So you know it's it's normal for it to be slow a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know I've been hunkering down in the bunker here for just to avoid the snow and the cold. Yeah. Yeah. We have two. I'm, I'm, I, I'll take, I'll take cold. Don't bring me ice, but please don't bring (laughs) me mud either. So, you know, let's just, let's just get to spring and and move on through that. So there's really only three colors outside. There's green, there's mud and there's snow and there's white. (laughs) For sure. For sure. (laughs) 
I feel like if you have a farm, you basically have a mud farm, no matter yes, where you, do. you are. <laughs> yeah. And things like to get stuck and it just, it's miserable. The goats don't even like it. And, oh. Uh, um, oh my gosh. Speaking of that. Yeah. Has anybody, have you watched the new Ford Bronco commercial? No. Okay. You've got to look it up because they've got these goats and I don't think they look like mountain goats. I'm really not sure what they are. But the premise behind this commercial is that they're that they they adopt a cult. And okay. so <laughs> you know, it shows goats going through a creek and I'm like, uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> Trying to get the horse to go through the creek creek and I, you know, I think it would probably be the other way around. The horse might be a little more eager to do that than the goats, but um you'll just have to look it up. It's it's nice to see goats in a um semi-positive light but wow it's another example of you know they might have wanted to get some more agricultural based people in um as advisors when they come up with commercials like this because you know if you're trying to talk about how tough a vehicle is you, you just might make sure you get it totally right so it's just it's just kind of funny you'll have to watch it um i'm fine i found an article here it says they used live goats uh, made a challenging. I made a challenging uh, photo shoot or video shoot, which I can yeah. imagine. I can imagine. I can imagine that too. Yeah, I also can tell that these goats will not make me want to buy a Ford Bronco. <laughs> no, probably not. <laughs> probably not. But anyway, I guess. I guess any positive publicity that goats get, that's a good thing, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely there. Um, moving right along, let's talk about our topic. We didn't really um, divulge it on the last podcast, but uh, Laura, what are we going to talk about today? Well, we are going to talk about what's probably foremost in most dairy goat breeders' minds right now, which is um, kidding season, which is coming up a lot sooner for you than for me, but still coming up. And, um, you know, we've had some people who have asked us, you know, uh, to give some information about what we do to prepare for kidding season, maybe share some ideas that they might consider. Um, you know, I certainly don't consider myself a, an expert by any means. I'm learning all the time. Um, and everybody's going to find some, some way that works for them. So I suppose we probably should start out by saying that. But we do have a lot of new a lot of uh, new to goat people that do listen to our podcast. So it's always good to, to um, kind of discuss this. And even for the people who've done it forever, they might have some, I might get some ideas from what we're talking about and have some ideas there. So, yeah, definitely. Um, and again, we're not, uh, I, I, we're, I mean, we've been doing this enough. We're not, you know, this is exactly how you need to do it by the book. Um, this is just kind of our protocols and what we do. And if you do it a different way, that's totally fine. As long as it works for your system, how you uh, you do things in your herd, we have no problem with that. But kind of peeling back the layer here uh, on how we do things and, and, and kind of showing people, hey, you know, this is something if you haven't tried it, um, you might, might want to look into it because it's worked for us. For sure. Absolutely. jumping in there um and something that you know um again as an ob nurse i try to tell my moms this the best thing that you can do to take care of 
um, yourself as a human mom is to have regular um, medical appointments and have somebody who's, you know, really overseeing your health to make sure that you're healthy going into um, the end of pregnancy and childbirth. And I found the same thing is very true for the goats. Um, you know, I suppose that, that you could just open the gate and stick a buck out there with them and turn them loose and, and uh, really don't give them much attention other than feed and water until five months later when you walk out and there's kids on the ground. But I can tell you uh, spending that extra time to make sure that, everything is in line. Uh, yeah. I think the same thing. I think we mom, see a lot of that, you know, pays off put them on pasture and, you, think, and you know, let them, you know, give them access to water. Hey, if you need it, if the pasture is covered in ice and whatnot, and then maybe sprinkling grain every once in a while, more on the, on the boar goat commercial boar goat side there. Um, and, and less on the, on the dairy goat side, especially on the dairy goat hobby side, because we are so focused on, um, having quality kids and being able to show them off and whatnot. And well, the commercial, um, uh, board goat side is more interested in, um, just getting kids on the ground and having, having them, um, just kind of be there so they can, you know, continue to either use them as replacement animals or sell them as market animals. So it's a different kind of approach there. And I think, um, how we, how we balance that, um, it's really good for our industry. Yeah. So, uh, fe- so I guess the first thing here is feeding I so pregnant. I agree does. with that. And I think there is differences, um, when it comes to breaking down, you know, your coming yearlings, obviously they need a lot more attention. Um, kind of your, your main does here that have freshened once before, or they were a dry yearling here. Um, and then your little bit older does as well. Um, when you do have, you know, your, your geriatric does, like we've talked about and taking care of them is, is definitely, um, very different than what you do with the other ones there. But Laura, how do you kind of focus on your coming yearlings and, and how do you feed them? So, you know, for me, the way that I have it set up here, um, I don't put my yearlings in with the herd until after they freshen. And there's a couple of reasons for that. (laughs) One is, you know, I have Alpines and, and, um, they, they, let's see, how do I want to put this kindly? Because I really like their personality, yep. but they're always not, um, there's a big difference between the Alpines that I have and the Sanans that I have. I think the Sanans would be fine having the whole herd together. Um, Alpines, they have a little bit more, um, witch to them. <laughs> Catherine, Catherine said a word, but I won't yeah. give her the microphone to describe them. So does it sound like witch maybe? Yeah, it might sound like witch. It might, yeah. Um, And and I love that about them. I love their strong personalities. And I sure don't keep any that are nasty because they can be. But uh, boy, they sure do really get into that whole pecking order thing. So for me, I keep my coming yearlings separated. Um, You know, they they have their little posse that they hang with. They don't have to compete for grain or hay or or, um, barn space or anything. And so um, I'm able to give them a little bit of an extra amount of attention. One thing that I've learned over the years, um, I feel like you really need to feed them heavier than what you do your other coming um, does that are dry that haven't freshened yet. Cause not only are they growing babies, but they're also growing themselves. So um, I, you know, I think that's really important. You don't want them fat. Yeah. That is so important because Think about it, and it, even from a human perspective, it takes so much energy and carbs and and protein to grow the body, but it also takes a lot of energy and protein and carbs to 
to grow uh, something else inside of you. So they're trying to trying to compete for resources on both fronts, the both in 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 utero and and whatnot, developing life, but also in in growing, putting on skeletal growth as well. Cameron, along with that, I I just have a little side tangent I want to run yeah. run to with you love for it. just a second. I love it. Okay, so there's always seemed to be a debate between keeping a doe dry and freshing them as a two-year-old and then freshening them as a yearling. So I want to share my personal bias because I started out as a Nubian breeder and because Nubians tend to not breed true, or at least my experience was that they didn't. I hated keeping does dry because that's just another year that I'm feeding them and getting attached to them to have to move them out of the herd when they didn't turn out. So I'd rather know sooner rather than later that they're not going to turn out. And the second thing is Nubians really have a, a great ability to pack on the pounds. And I didn't like taking a 200 pound dry yearling out into the show ring. I just, it just wasn't fun. <laughs> I have one comment. It makes me think about our conversation earlier. We had about, um, there's a certain Adga judge that always calls a little heavier, um, dry yearlings, hardworking gals. So you, you know, those, <laughs> yeah. those hardworking gals there, uh, Catherine, uh-huh. when we st- when you started this um, topic and tangent, Catherine immediately got up. So, Catherine, what do you have to say here? Um, I think one thing that I like to take away from like the cattle industry is they like to see their heifers before they're bred seventy to eighty percent the their mature size. I think that's a really good thing to use within goats because you don't want to breed that April kid that's only fifty pounds because she's not going to grow very much while she's trying to keep this kid growing inside of her. So she's always going to maintain that small size and she's not going to grow to her full potential. I would agree with that. Yeah, I would agree too. Thank you. You can stand up, keep standing up if you want. Uh, She just hit me on the head. (laughs) I love it. I love it. Um, Well, you know, so I've had people who will say um, the best way to get a, a good sized mature goat is to keep them dry. And that has not been my experience. In fact, my experience has maybe more gone along the lines that if they are like what Catherine said, um, a decent size to breed as, you know, so that they freshen as yearlings, it almost seems like those hormones or whatever, a feed efficiency because they're pregnant. I, I don't really know. I think sometimes they grow better. What has your experience been with that? Um, I would agree with that. They do tend to grow a little better. Um, and it makes me go back and we talked about it with Anna last week about how, um, how they breed their, their yearlings first. Um, Emily Thompson, her sister followed up with me on that, um, kind of in a mess in a Facebook message there and said, they focus on, on a, instead of a date, like an arbitrary date, they set a, a weight tape goal. I don't know if they use weight tape, but they set a weight goal on, on where to breed them for that. And Catherine's shaking her head, kind of agreeing with that philosophy there. Yeah. I think that's really, I, I really like that philosophy. So, you know, I think regardless those coming yearlings, if you do choose to breed them, make sure they are big enough to breed, but then keep supporting them, um, you know, nutrition wise so that they can continue on their trajectory of growing. Yeah, I totally agree there. So, yeah, managing and I agree. I we do the same thing. We keep them in a different pen than the older does. Um, uh, but we also run our dry yearlings in that same pen as well. So all of our 
kids essentially um, from the previous year. So our kids from 2020 will run in that same pen um, probably until we get to a culling standpoint, um, which we want to reduce that number there. Right. We do that too. We don't, we don't separate out those dry runs because again, they're dry because maybe they weren't quite the size that I wanted to see to breed them. So I don't feel like it hurts them to get extra nutrition. We did. We did actually pull our dry yearlings though, because we do have some May, some May-ish, later May um, kids that are dry yearlings next year. We did actually pull them out for about six weeks and we managed them in a completely separate pen. Um, that's a little side note on, on there just for six weeks, just to get more grain and more concentrated nutrient, nutrient just to build more skeletal growth in them. How'd that work for you? Um, I really liked it. I definitely did see it as well. My dad really liked it as well. I don't know if it's something in the future we're going to work to implement um, just because it was kind of um, a little bit of a cluster kind of just to, to feed them and whatnot and add another step in chores. But um, it's something that, you know, definitely in the future we'll maybe look at it again. Um, I liked it. I don't know if we'll do it again, but we'll, I liked it. Very interesting. So those does, Cameron, that are at their um – I guess I would call them their, their peak years, you know, the years that, that, you know, they're, they've already freshened once they're not to that geriatric stage. Those, those really good, strong, productive years. How do you guys manage those does? Um, so we, we put on hay, mostly do hay throughout, um, from ending their lactation because obviously they're getting fed and we're, we're trying to milk, up to or, or tr- trying to milk as long as possible. I think our last test this year was in um, November. Um, and we just keep them on hay after that dry period here. We'll sprinkle in some grain as a treat, but we'll really try to focus on um, putting them on a lot of just that hay. So when you say hay, describe what kind of hay you're feeding. Yeah, we're feeding a grass alfalfa mix hay. Um RFV, Catherine, what do you think my RFV hay is? My my hay guy tells me it's like 120 or something like that. So that's not right. That's about right. That's about right. 120 RFV is what we're feeding there. Um, so, I yeah, I, we have, we've always done a grass alfalfa mix. and But generally, though, it's also what you can get at that time of year, too. Oh, yes. Yes. You know, there are, there are variables we do shoot for that. I, I do like a, a RFV of 120 uh, to feed it in there. There's, I, that's not an exact science. That's just my my personal philosophy, though. Okay, that sounds good. And then, is there a certain point in their pregnancy then when you start offering more grain? Yeah, so we'll turn on the grain um, probably about a month ish out from when we uh, Catherine's. Catherine's like, no, not a month. Um, but we generally turn on the grain about um, a month ish out from their preg from the end of their pregnancies. Um, but we also don't break them up into pens by pregnancies. So we will do about every other day grain. Um, and each pen, which is not an exact uh-huh. science again, gets about a bucket, uh, of grain between, and there's probably, t- um, 12 ish, 12 to 14 ish goats in each pen. So we'll get a bucket out and we'll disperse that out. Okay. That's that's not very different from what we do. We probably grain a little bit earlier than that, but um, you know, I have okay. my all of my mature herd runs together. So if I had a way to split them up a little bit more, I probably wouldn't grain as early as we tend to. Um, but 
I, I try to go a lot on body condition. Um, I want that nice balance of, you know, not being rolling fat, obviously, but I also, I, I'd like them to carry a little bit more weight to the freshening point, just so they have some stores to, to get lactation going and, and don't look like a walking skeleton from the first day that they kid, you know, um, and it's harder for some goats than others. So that, that would be a future goal for me is to split things up a little bit more so that I can feed a little more individually than what I, what I currently do. Yeah. Catherine's got a little different perspective there and, and talk, she's going to talk a little bit about um, changing up feed values of hay too, I think. So like for our farm, what we do is during the dry off period, we try to keep them a low amount of like this is like dry off period first part of breeding we keep everything on a little bit of a lower quality hay just so they stop milking but still enough nutrients to where we can still have solid heat cycles and don't completely reduce our reproductive fertility window so once everyone's bred we up them back up to an alfalfa hay mix that's we go through they eat a lot of hay but we'll also grain the does with a 14 percent protein feed one pound per head um once a day through that period and then when we get to about six to eight weeks before kidding we then bump it up to twice a day and we also change it over to um a higher protein so we feed 17 percent protein just to get that um embryo growth or the i guess the fetal growth that they need for the kids and then when we freshen everyone we switch over to fourth cutting pure alfalfa and um, stay with that 17% grain. But we up the amount per head just because of lactation. I think that sounds smart. Now I have a question for both of you guys. Um, I have had people tell me before that they'll feed grain pretty consistently all through pregnancy. And then that last month they cut the grain quite a bit to help um, with a smaller size kid at the end of pregnancy. Have you had anybody tell you that before? And what do you think about that? I'm looking at my vet right now. So Um, during those last six to eight weeks, it's really important to keep a really high level of nutrition because of that fetal growth. I know people want smaller kids, but then you risk them being smaller sized as mature does too, because you don't have that um, growth that they need in the last six to eight week period. You also have a lot of changes going on in the dough during that time period where she's getting ready for parturition. So she herself has an increase in nutrient needs. So by decreasing it, you're actually kind of hurting both the dough and any kids. That makes more sense to me. Yeah, you, you also got to understand as well is that um, lactation takes a lot of energy out of the dough. And, and, and you may notice, you know, animals tend to get sucked up in their belly because they're trying to put a lot of resources towards lactation. So that's something to consider there with your with your comment there, Laura. Yeah, uh, that that, you know, from a, a human nutrition standpoint, that makes a lot more sense to me. I just I've been told that before and I thought, "Mm, I'm not quite sure I agree with that. So good to know somebody else thinks that way too. Yeah. Laura, what about with your geriatric, your special gals, your geriatric does? Yeah. You know, that's something that, um, you know, and I'm talking about like those seven, eight, nine year old does that, you know, 
you you can tell life is taking kind of a toll on them too. Um, doesn't mean that they still can't have beautiful babies for you and that them they themselves can't have a nice productive year, but you know that that you know being bred every year that takes that takes a lot out of them. So one thing that that we try to do is really pay attention to that body condition on those older does, especially the ones that look like that they're carrying a lot of kids. Um I feel like last year uh, she was just a five-year-old, so not terribly older, but um, one of my does lost quads about three weeks before she was due to kid. And looking back on it, I really think probably um, I needed to be maybe supplementing her with some extra feed, maybe um, giving her some dine or, um, you know, maybe a, a protein block or things like that, just because she had so many kids and was really trying to maintain everything. And, and I think I just kind of missed that on her. So um, I tend to, to give some extra special attention to those geriatric does, make sure that their body condition is good, maybe pull them aside for some extra time on the milk stand, um, some grain all by themselves, some extra treats, maybe give them a little bit of uh, calf manna or dine or different things to help help them keep their condition up so that they're he- heading into kidding in a good way. Yeah, don't forget those animal crackers that you uh, have in your pockets of your coats. Hey, that's they they have they are addicts. I kid you not. It, it almost I've all I've I've kind of hung back on feeding those because I want them to like me for me, not just because I'm giving them <laughs> animal crackers and it's getting really ugly. Sometimes they're climbing on top of each other and it, it's crazy. So I don't know. I might've caused a big monster problem. Well, I got a Snapchat from uh, one of your daughters and it was like, I'm wearing my, or my mom's coat out of chores. And I find these things and it was animal crackers. I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, it, it does help you. Elizabeth has a Sonnen that is just, I don't know why she's just a real spooky goat, but, but the animal crackers have made her catchable now. So, you know, there, there's some good things, but man, you just, a treat is fine. Not an everyday, not an everyday thing. Cause they are really crazy with it. So anyway. Yeah, no, I agree there. What about any special considerations? Do you take um, having multiples or triplets or anything? Because you do have the ultrasound machine now. I do, but I'll tell you what, I'm not, I'm not good enough to say, oh, look, there's quads there. Um, I can tell you it, it doesn't take very long for those babies to get big enough that, um, you know, you can see parts of a baby, but it's hard to count them. So I, I just need to learn more with it. But sometimes, you know, you can you can look at a doe and think, oh my gosh, this doe is huge. And and one thing that I've learned, um, um, a doe that I have named Whimsy, she gave me quads last year. She was one of the first ones to kid last year. And um, I looked at her weight this year compared to her weight last year. And she weighs just as much this year as she did at the same time in her pregnancy last year. And she is, she is like a house. So she weigh taped at 200 pounds last weekend and she's not fat. I mean, you know, you definitely feel her withers and her ribs and her hip bones and everything. So, um, you know, when I see does like that, I really do try to make sure, are they getting up? Do I see them every feeding time at the feed bunk or at the hay feeder? Because, you know, when I've had does that have gotten in trouble and I look back on it, those are the does that 
are either lame or just want to lay around or you don't see them outside. And I think, I just think it's important again, having your eyes on your herd and having the time to sit and watch them day and night is really important. Yeah. Laura, I completely agree with that because the more um, fetal number that they have, their higher risk they have for ketosis. So making sure that those does are getting up and get and eating and eating appropriately, or if they need a little bit extra, make sure that they're getting that because especially that three to four weeks before kidding, you have extreme re- risk for ketosis and abortion because they're trying to put all the nutrients into those kids. And if they can't feed themselves, they're going to slip those kids before they kill themselves. Catherine, do you, what kind of supplements do you, um, do you suggest or recommend or um, things to help keep those does going? Right. So I like to watch the way they're eating. And if they're off feed, I check their gum color. So if they get really pale, it's one of two things. It's either parasites or they're just really ketotic. And most of the time it's ketotic because we just keep a really good warming protocol in our herd. So um, I like to do um, either from Technix, you can do their YMCP or to get them boosted to start do 60 cc's of a propylene glycol drench. So that's just all extra sugar. And then um, you switching them from like a pelleted to a sweet feed. So they have the extra molasses and carbs from that is really good. Just making sure that they get those extra carbs, not just from hay to keep them going. Good. That sounds like sounds like a good plan. This is why I like having Catherine here uh, for the first time because she can use big science words like ketosis. Well, it is it is scary when you see a, a doe go down, and um, yeah, you know there have been times where I know that I've watched a doe that was really big with kids, and she just looks like she just looks like her feet hurt. And you pick up her feet; her ankles are warm. Maybe they're a little bit swollen. Um, do you have any, have, have you guys experienced that with does before carrying, carrying a lot of kids and what kind of things have you done to help those? Yeah, I've seen that kind of in, you know, first fresheners that are experiencing, um, you know, maybe they're having qua- or, uh, triplets or something like that. So I've seen that, um, and maybe their body isn't big enough for that. So, um, generally what we'll do is, um, we will either give um, like some type of pain relief thing. So I think um, uh, not prevail. Well, you use prevail. Um, I use banamine um, generally in the last couple of days. Also, I'll use um, what's the horse stuff I use? Prevacox. Not Prevacox. Um, the gel. Okay, Catherine's looking oh, beagle at me. Oil. Uh, beagle oil. Beagle oil. Yes, you find that at Farm and Fleet. Uh, I don't know why I can't remember anything now, but beagle oil on the joints as well. That's um, uh, a horse product that's used for sensitive joints. Um, I like to think of it as almost kind of like an icy hot oh, um, sure. for the joints. So, yeah, I like uh, we beagle oil is one of our wonders um, on our farm that we use, and we probably could buy the entire store out of it. That's good to know. Haven't tried that. So, I'll think about that. Yeah. So that's, that's something there that we use. Um, so, so when do you guys, so vaccinations, I feel like are an important part of um, getting your animals ready. What is your protocol that you guys use? Yeah. So this is actually my favorite subject. Um, <laughs> I love vaccination schedules. So for our herd, we like to deworm and do CDTs in the fall, just prior to breeding season. 
And then um, in that six to eight week period before we freshen, we'll do two rounds of CDT um, again on the senior dose. So that way they get that first exposure for themselves. And then two weeks later, come back in and that actually will um, get them to stimulate more antibodies that they'll actually put in their colostrum. So that's really important for the kids then. So then you're passing along any protection for the kids for any clostridium or tetanus through that. So two, so two shots in the spring for them. So, cause like, I know we've always just done, you know, the two shots for the kids when they're born and then about a month before they kid, give them one, but you, you use a protocol for two. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So with the two shot theory, you're getting, um, double the, so some does might not be, um, stimulated to produce antibodies for clostridium or tetanus with that first shot. So by doing two rounds, you're definitely getting them to get the antibody production up. Oh, very good. Okay. Do you also um, use um, selenium? Um, I did BOCI this past spring. We did it on the kids because I was starting to notice some weaker pasterns and it brought the does up. And then we actually had some really nice kids out of these first fresheners. Um, so we did it. I think I did it like two. It wasn't a regular thing that we do. Okay. Um, we did that about two weeks before we kitted. Most of the time we'll use BOCI only on kids that aren't thriving very well when they're born. It's not really a regular shot that we give. We try to keep everything pretty well on a high level of selenium through supplementing with um, minerals. Very good. Well, I know that different parts of the country have different selenium needs. So I think that's important because tell me if I'm right, that is one of those that you can overdose on and it's fatal, correct? It is. It's really hard to overdose them on it. Okay. But um, by keeping it at like a low dose of uh, two cc's on your mature dose and one cc on your kids at the very max. Okay, um, that's pretty common dosage. Good to know. We we do BOCI. My farm does BOCI. We like BOCI. Um, we don't do CDNT uh, vaccinations because we are different. I guess. Um, I do agree with Catherine's method, though. Uh, we do fight about some things on the farm and how we're gonna do them in our future farm. But uh, vaccinations and protocols like that are not my strong suit, considering I have not uh, invested uh, almost four years into vet school. So <laughs> that's something I'm gonna let her win on. Well, I'm just gonna share this, and and you know. Your, your mileage definitely may vary, Cameron and Catherine and our listeners too. And I know that, you know, different people have different thoughts about vaccines. Um, you know, I was always taught that CD&T is just something that you just have to do. Um, and then talked with some breeders that said, well, we don't, you know, we don't use CD&T. And um, we started, we had some issues with... Um, we call them shot knots, basically little abscesses from giving that CD&T shot. Now, whether it was um, due to poor technique or what it was, but it seemed like no matter how careful I was to use, you know, a, as clean an environment as I could and a correct technique, we would get these knots, um, little abscessy looking things where we would give the CD&T. So we stopped giving that. Um, you know, I didn't feel like that we were at a tetanus risk here. We've not had horses on this farm and, and so forth. And, um, it seemed to be fine until it wasn't. I, I think it's all, 
based on your management strategies and everything. Um, we all have in our area a big clostridium issue. Um, our herd had it when we first started getting the hot and heavy in goats again in the 2000s. Um, and a lot of the board goats around us have issues with clostridium just because of our wet environment and the way we manage goats with a higher concentrate versus forage. Because around us, a lot of the horse people take all the hay before we can get our hands on it. So um, having the uh, having the CD&T regularly for our, for our program is something we like to use as a preventative measure. And then I kind of promote it with our kids too because we tend to raise our kids on a more concentrate-oriented um, schedule with grain. So that's a big thing that we like to do. Well, I think, Catherine, what you just said right there is something that is so important to know because um, I didn't know any of those considerations when we made the decision not to give it. I just thought, oh, other people get by, fine. I won't do it either. And um, we lost... 14 animals in one three month period due to enterotoxemia. And that was, you know, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't know why we were losing these animals. They were fine. And then the next day they weren't, it was horrible. They're pretty much gone in eight hours. We had pretty bad experience with that. Lost a couple really good does. Um, it's kind of something you learn to manage once you've experienced it. Um, we've had a good experience with um, using an antitoxin as well as making sure the dose get um, triple the dose of penicillin that helped us manage. Well, once we learned what it was, we do keep the antitoxin on hand and penicillin on hand for that reason and knock on wood haven't, <sighs> I don't think we've maybe lost yeah. one goat since then, but I, that was horrible. That was almost my breaking point as far as I'm done with goats. I can't, I can't do this anymore. This is horrible. So we do, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to say do what I do. Don't do what I do. I'm just saying if you choose not to vaccinate, know why, know why you're making that choice and, and, you know, know why you might, think otherwise later on down the road. I think with anything health wise, whether it's for yourself or for your animals, you gotta, gotta do the science behind it. Don't just make a, a blind decision for sure. Ooh, a pro tip for not having those abscesses when you do injection sites, um, you're probably not deep enough in the sub Q. So when you put your needle in, if you pull back on the plunger and you have some negative pressure where it snaps back in place, then you know, you're good to go. And then you shouldn't be getting an abscess. Good to know. Thank you. Cameron, you've got a smart fiance there. I like to think so. <laughs> um, but along those lines as well, looking at vaccinations, that's a very important thing like we just talked about. But pre-kitting wise, other things you might need to do for the does, um, hoof trims. And Laura, you've talked about that. I've talked about that. They're very important. Yes. Now we, I don't know about you, Cameron and Catherine, but we try not to do them when they're hugely big with kids. We try to do it, you know, about halfway through pregnancy so that uh, they can make it through to those really big times. And then, um, you know, right after they kid, we'll trim them again. And we'll talk about that. We'll I know, but um, yeah, we'll generally do that. Um, like 
two-ish weeks before. So we have a group that's due in two weeks too. I think there's like 12 in that group. And my dad just did them today because he's bored and has nothing else to do. (laughs) Um, So we did that. Um, He also did um, trim up. So trim up around the maternity areas, as I call them. We call those our bikini Um, trims. Bikini trims. Uh, yes. So trim up around those. Um, plus it's always exciting to watch those develop as well. So that kind of aims in the excitement as well. Oh yeah. You can see those little udders developing. You're like, oh my gosh, this is great. Yeah. So exciting. Yeah. Yes. So that's all I had on like pre-kidding before kidding, kind of looking at that. Right. Laura, anything else for you? No. Um, you know, so once you get to that day, I'm really, I'm really eager to hear how you guys manage it because there is such a variation in how people approach the actual day of kidding and where they do it and how they, how they get it done. So why don't you step into to what that looks like for you guys? <laughs> um, hopefully not a lot of screaming and yelling. Um, you mean amongst uh, the people in the barn? Yeah, I go to people on the barn, on the phone, um, just a whole mess of things. And it might be like an hour and a half and Catherine's like, where are you? And I'll be like, oh, I was just, I had a problem and I had to deal with it with, in the kid barn. And she's like, great. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to have any of those this year. Knock on wood. Um, uh, but uh, the first thing to decide really is where are you going to have the kids? Um, are you going to have the kids in the pen or are you going to have the kids in the kidding or in a, uh, in the barn? So are you going to make a separate pen for them or are you going to let them kid in the dry lot? Hmm. So what do you do? We do pens. We set up pens. We have um, three pens that we set up uh, for kidding pens. Um, obviously, sometimes we may have more than three in labor, but we try to get them all in some type of pen. So they're kind of away. It's a less stressful environment. Not everybody's looking, you know, just to um, give them a more peaceful uh, time. Catherine's laughing and rolling her eyes at me now uh, for saying that more peaceful time for the dough um, as they welcome their little miracle. Now that's interesting because I'm going to share a different perspective. Okay. Um, I always used to do that, have my goats and kidding pens. And um, when I worked at a, a farm where we kitted a whole bunch of does one year, um, we didn't use kidding pens. And I was kind of freaked out by that a little bit. There were a bunch, it was a bunch of yearlings and some yearlings and two-year-olds together. And um, the person that I was working with said, just watch and see. I want you, want you to see what happens. And what I kind of discovered was sometimes those first-time kidding does really get freaked out when you take them out of their regular environment. Um when you put them in a pen by themselves, they don't like it. They don't see their buddies. Uh, they're crying. They're, they're nervous about it. Um, and what I watched happen when those, when those does would kid out in the barn with the rest of the animals, a lot of times other moms would help them, you know, help clean up the kids and, and seem to um, almost calm down that mama when they're doing it. And I think, I, I think, probably everybody has seen that you'll have those really maternal does that, that are like the moms for everybody. Um, 
So we don't, we don't usually use kidding pins. What we notice though, is that the does will segregate themselves off into an area by themselves. But, um, you know, we try to make sure that we've got clean bedding down and, and then we clean out that area after they're done, but we don't use a kidding pin, but I also don't leave does, you know, kids on their dams. So I would imagine if you're, you know, if you're using a different setup and you want to make sure that those moms imprint with their babies, you probably do want them separated by themselves. So that there's no chance that somebody's going to steal those babies or the mom won't take care of them then. So. Yeah, definitely a different perspective there. And, and I, I love that. Um, and that's why I love doing a podcast with you, Laura, because we have different experiences and whatnot there. Um, yeah, I do. I do notice when those yearlings do have kids, they do get a little nervous. They don't know where they're at. They, well, the seven-year-old comes in as like just another trip around the sun. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it, I do notice that. And that's a really good different perspective there. I will say though, it's sure easier to keep things clean if you have a kidding pin, you know, and then you can yes. clean it all out and disinfect it before you bring that next one in. So I am kind of um, envious of, of setups that have these, these uh, beautiful concrete and chain link pins set up. And, and I'm like, wow, that's really nice. And they can train their camera right on it so that, you know, they see what's going on and, and uh, that looks pretty nice and high tech, but you know, our, my method works too. So, yeah, that's Catherine's world. There, she's got the camera. We can watch it. We can put it up on the big screen TV in her house uh, when we're there. So, that's Catherine's world. <laughs> <laughs> it uh, is nice. One thing, yeah. What about materials to have? I got a whole list of things that you should probably have during the kidding process. Um, what are some things that you have to have quickly or on hand um, right away when it's kidding day? Uh lube. A, a, a bucket yep. of a bucket of warm water and some good lube because there's sometimes that I don't have small hands and there are sometimes that, um, you know, it is just a tight squeeze and lube makes all the difference in being able to get in there or not. And I don't know what you use, Cameron, but we just use what we, the same stuff we use for AI. That is literally what I wrote down on my sheet. Oh, good. Okay. That is, that is, I said, uh, can't be the same lube you used in AI, uh, because that is the only lube we pretty much have on the farm. Um, in preparation for this though, I did watch a YouTube video from our friend, my friend at Manzanita La Mancha's on kidding prep and all the materials just to make sure I kind of had everything covered there. So, um, I think our YouTube page is called in the milk room in the milk house, something like that. Um, if you don't, if you're new, uh, you might want to go check that out. That has a good overview of what you might need. Plus a little extra stuff. Um, yeah. So, so go ahead and check that out. If you have it a uh, great resource there, but lube was absolutely one thing you need their gloves as well. Um, if you don't want to go fishing with your bare hands, um, Catherine has a different perspective on gloves and why they're important. And I'm going to let her share. Um, with gloves. I mean, I can't preach this because I don't, care for using gloves, but the more they preach it to us at school, I kind of understand why. Um, there's just a lot of infectious diseases that can be transmitted between goats and humans. So like if you're pregnant or plan to become pregnant at some point in time, just be careful when you're pulling kids or whatnot. Um, that way you don't get anything that can maybe hinder your ability to have kids or cause an abortion for yourself. I would totally second that. I used to never use gloves and I always use gloves. I mean, yeah, when, when, when you think about things that could be passed like that, you, you have to be safe. 
Mm-hmm. Um, something else that that I so I oh, I have just a tote that I carry down um, and keep in the barn when it's kidding season, and it always has a whole bunch of towels. You can't ever have too many towels, I don't think. Um, it has um, one of those drop in the bucket water heaters because I like to have warm water down there. Um, it's nice to wash your hands off. Um, it's also nice to to have some warm water to offer the dough after she's kitted, you know, so that she's not so shaky. And I always keep some molasses down there so I can put some molasses in that water for her also. Um, I have those, you can, I think I ordered them from Caprine supply, but I think you can use a whole bunch of different things. Some type of a, a little um, collar that you can, put on the kids that you can write whose whose kids they are, especially if you have a whole bunch we of kidding. Love, yeah, we love for those for the togs. We use the dairy cow leg bands. Oh. And they're usually just the um we usually get them cheap and we can get all sorts of colors. And so that way each doe has their kid has the same color from that dam. But then we write on them just in case we double up colors to make sure we know whose kid is whose. Oh that's a good idea. And yeah, I can imagine with togs yep. especially. Or Sonnen. It's I, I could tell them apart, but like if someone else is doing chores because I'm not always home, it's kind of nice for them to know, oh, so-and-so's kid is in the corner not feeling well right. type thing. And we'll keep those on them until they're about three weeks old because they're expandable enough. Um, We also keep a kid puller. Do you guys, have you guys used those? The yeah, so... We, I got one for my mom two years ago because I wasn't home and she was the only one there to pull kids. And we just had a horrible kidding season. Two of our mature does, um, their kids, their heads were turned back. Um, the kids were huge on top of it. So it was like trying to get the head to come forward and stay forward. You'd get the legs up and that you'd have the legs and you'd fix the head, but then the legs would tuck under or vice versa. So um, I got that for her. And then we always have some chains on hand a little bit too. Um, you can use either or the kid puller or chains. Um, just be careful when dealing with the head and neck. You don't want to get too tight. You don't want to choke the kids out. But um, those are good to have on hand if ever you have a kid that always wants to tuck its head back or even under its chest. Kind of puts that head in alignment with those feet and you can get them out better. Also make sure that the feet go to the head you're working on. <laughs> you don't want to be pulling two kids out at once and then struggling that fight. Been there, done that. That's horrible. Yeah, it's not fun. No. One thing I really like to keep on hand is oxytocin. And and this is where Catherine and I are a little bit different. Um, I like oxytocin because if they're pushing and they're not dilating or whatnot, oxytocin is a great thing to have on hand. Um, and it just is a great way to kind of start off that, that process if it's taking a little longer there. So I really like to have oxytocin. Um, Catherine, on the other hand, might not like it as much but the body naturally produces oxytocin also it's great after they're done if they're not pushing their afterbirth out just to help them a little bit along the lines we've just had a bad experience in the past with oxytocin um we had a ruptured uterus because we gave oxytocin to a doe um thinking she was done and it just she just kept pushing really hard and nothing was coming so she ended up rupturing her uterus uh, if you don't know what you're doing with oxytocin, it's not a good thing to use. Um, if they're not pushing in the first place, you don't want to give them oxytocin because it just causes contractions. And if that cervix isn't dilated enough, 
it's not going to get any more dilated because you gave them oxytocin, Cameron. Um, they're just going to keep pushing and nothing can come out because the hole's too small. As a labor and delivery nurse, I would absolutely second that. I don't, I keep oxytocin on hand for those does that, um, that I'm a hundred percent sure that they're, they're done kidding. But for whatever reason, you know, maybe, maybe I really had to manipulate a lot and had to go in there. Um, and they're bleeding a little heavier than what I'm comfortable with. I'll go ahead and give oxytocin, um, to hopefully help them pass that afterbirth and to, to get the uterus to clamp down and, and hopefully control some of the bleeding. But, um, Oh gosh, I've just, I'm pretty, I have a healthy fear of oxytocin just from my work. I'm working with laboring moms. So um, I, I do have a question for you guys. I've seen this multiple times on Facebook. You know, there's lots of people who are experts on Facebook and they will talk about a doe that's not um, dilating, that her cervix isn't dilating. So they will take lutelice and rub on the cervix. Why would that work? <laughs> I'm going to defer this to Catherine because okay. her face just kind of went crazy. Okay. It, it wouldn't work in any way, shape, or form. So lutelice, the only thing it ever does is it's going to lice that CL. And once you're in parturition, there's no CL that needs to be lysed for them to induce having um, their kids. So when you get... Um, they call it ring womb, so that's what it's. That's the technical term when the cervix isn't dilating enough. You literally have to manually expand that cervix um, with your hand, kind of going in and putting pressure on it to get it to open. Because there's nothing you can do besides manual traction to get that to open up. Thank you. That's that. I just every time I see that and people talk about, oh well, have you put little ice on the cervix? I'm like. That that can't work. There's no there's yeah, no wind doesn't do anything. Okay. Okay. Good yeah. to know. Okay. One last thing. Um, I don't have anything else, but I do have a question for you. Um, do you do a kidding synchronization protocol or do you just let nature work its course? What are your thoughts on that? Oh, this is a can of worms. I know it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why uh-huh. you know, Thanks, gloves are coming off on the podcast. <laughs> I would say 80% of the kittings that I have ever done with my own goat. So, and this is like starting back in the eighties I've induced, I almost always sink them to kid. And the reason why is, um, you know, with my job and in my life, I feel like it's important to be there if I can. Um, and I feel like that the risk of them kidding by themselves and nobody being there to help them is greater than any perceived risk that comes from inducing. Um, I only induce if I absolutely have no question whatsoever on the due date. If there's a question, I won't induce them. Um, But I completely agree with that statement because if you don't know that due date, you don't know how old those kids are. So you could be inducing a doe that you may think is due in five days or so, but she's not due for another 28 days. Right. Yeah. So you're going to have kids that are bad. So know your due dates. The other thing that I like to preach is when you do induce, make sure you give some dexamethasone with that lutelice. That way, if you are borderline on your dates, um, that dexamethasone helps um, mature the lungs on those fetuses. 
And then that way you don't have too much of an issue if they are premature with underdeveloped lungs and then not being able to have live kids. I was going to say the same thing, Catherine. Um, I haven't always used dexamethasone with it, but I feel like not only does it help with lung maturity on those kids, but it also tightens up that window of time. Or yeah. At least that's what I've seen um, on getting dosed a kid. Yeah. So um, your lutalize will cause them to start going into parturition, but the dexamethasone helps with uterine contraction. So it shortened up to your interval. Yeah. Good to know. I just, I knew it worked. I wasn't sure how it worked that way. So, but yeah, we do. Cameron, do you induce your, do you sink your dose to kid? No. And we had a terrible experience and I call it, um, I'm going to say something that I I generally don't tell people, but we call it like the $5,000 hole where we have um, a bunch of animals. I don't know if we didn't do the protocol right or or something, but um, we lost like five or six goats and the estimated retail value of those goats was probably at about $5,000. So um, we lost a bunch of animals one time when we synced them all and we said never again. So we have one bad experience with it. We have people like yourself, great friend of mine, uh, Laura and and, um, Julie Mathis and the Mint Leaf Herd that, that does it all the time and swears by it. And I have no problem with that, but um, we've started using something, I, I, I think, I've, I've branded it as this, called the Conifil method that Iowa State patented, where we're actually um, keeping our lights on all the time, and that causes them to kid generally most of the time uh, when we're at home at night. The what method? Conifil, K-O-N-E-F-A-L. Okay. See, they taught us on the animal science side of things, if you feed continuously every 12 hours at the same time every day, they're going to kid when you're there. So that's what they taught us on the animal science side of things. Okay. Could somebody please do that and let me know how that works? That's like really cool. Ours actually, we don't have very many night kitters. It's every once in a blue moon, we'll get a night kitter. So we normally we'll feed at seven in the morning and six o'clock at night. And that's consistent every day. And most of our does will kid between that 11 and three o'clock in the afternoon. It's not a complete science, but that's generally when everything kids. Very cool. And we generally, we generally tend to kid between the hours of uh, three o'clock in the afternoon to about um, six o'clock in the morning is generally what our six or seven o'clock in the morning. I would say for about 80% of our does tend to kid in that time. Again, I'm, I don't know if mine's proven by science or not. It probably is on the cattle side, um, but it just generally tends to work out for us here. Um, also, I have a new job where I work remotely now, so I can be at the farm during the big kidding times as well um, and being checking on those does. So I, I prefer not to not to do it, not to sink. But it is it is a can of worms and, and everybody has different experiences. Right. And, you know, I think, as I said, I think it's like anything else that that anytime you are messing with Mother Nature, you have to come to an understanding in your head is the risk worth doing this? I mean, is, you know, um, you you just have to have to be able to live with that because, you know, anytime you mess with mother nature, you might be causing more problems. So you just have to know if, if that's the right thing for you or not and, and go forward. So know how to do it safely. Yeah, definitely there. And yeah, I think that's, that's all on that topic. Anything else? It's the day of kidding. Anything else you want to talk about? Mention Catherine, Laura, yeah, the day they're kidding, yeah. What do you guys do for your kids right after right after they're born? 
Yes, this is where Catherine and I differ. I'm going to let Catherine go first. Um, so we try to at least have someone present when they're born. Um, we let mom lick a little bit, but not too, just enough to stimulate oxytocin. And then we um, pull the kids. We wrap them in a blanket and we do everything inside the house. So they come inside. They're in tubs. Uh, we check them to make sure that um, their navel isn't too long or too short. And if it's too long, we'll go ahead and shorten that up. And then we dip them in 7% strong iodine. Um, the kids then sit for a couple hours while we heat up colostrum. And then by that point in time, it's usually, they're usually a couple hours old and they're super hungry. So we can actually train them to drink out of a pan. That's just the way we do things. It's, it makes it a lot easier for cleanup. So they never ever learn to know how to suckle on a, like on a nipple or anything. They just learn how to suckle out of a pan. And it's like a Tupperware dish, like yeah, like so, something you'd put sandwiches in. Yeah, so it's small enough to where it's got enough milk for them to drink, and, but not be deep enough where they need like their whole head submerged in milk to get them to even do anything. But yeah, so they have such a strong suckling instinct that as soon as we just like direct their head a little bit into this pan with colostrum and it's warm, they just go to town on it. No kidding. Really? So you don't ever, you don't ever have to give them a nipple. Nope, never. And then, so it's funny cause I'll go down to the barn and I'll hear the mature does. They'll still, they still suckle when they drink water. So they have that suckling mechanism, but they associate it whenever they drink a liquid. Very interesting. Yeah. I'm a little different than Catherine. We generally tend to dry off. Um, we don't let, we try not to let them, um, maybe lick a little bit, but not generally very much. Um, and then we take them inside immediately here. We have a system of green tubs, those green mineral cattle tubs that we've uh, set up and whatnot, and they'll go right under a heat lamp and then we'll, we'll dry them off a little bit more as needed. We will, um, dip the navel, um, uh, in iodine, looks like Catherine had, uh, said there. Um, we generally don't shorten the navel. We just let it be. Um, and then we'll wait a little bit. And instead of Catherine generally tends to give, um, fresh colostrum, um, from the dam or from someone else. Um, I, we do uh powdered colostrum actually, which is a little different, um, than, uh, that. So we give them powdered colostrum there for their first couple uh, feedings there. And we do it right out of the bottle, um, for the first couple feedings to kind of get that, um, that sucking motion and understanding that they're. Um, after a couple of days, we will transition or after, excuse me, a couple of feedings, we'll transition them to milk right in there. Um, we le generally leave them in our house in the basement for two to three days. Um, after that, we take them outside and we try to teach them to feed off a pan right away when they're getting whole milk. Um, so that's a, a little different system there than Catherine's got set up. Um, nonetheless, both very effective. Yeah, we usually keep our kids inside for five days or so that way they have a strong start and then we do heads like we just bud kids before they go back in the barn very cool um we're kind of a a little bit of a blend of both of you um you know we do let the does kind of lick on them a little bit um again to kind of stimulate oxytocin and try to get those mothering hormones there um but then they go in a they go in our house and um we keep them in a um, pack and play in my kitchen. I have a, okay. a little, yes, yes. little area kind of off the side that it's not like in the middle of the kitchen. It's kind of off to the side. Um, they stay in there usually five or six days. Um, 
we'll just butt them once we take them out to the barn then. Um, and we, we bottle feed, we start with a lamb bar nipple. So, um, by the time they go out to the barn, they're on a lamb bar. We don't, I hate bottle feeding, hate it with a passion. So, um, you know, we get them on the lamb bar just as quickly as we can, but, um, I tend to, to use fresh colostrum from them, from their mom and feed that if I, you know, if at all I can, um, I've not ever used powdered colostrum. So that's kind of a curiosity to me. Do you, what do you do with your colostrum then Cameron? Uh, we generally just put it on the manure pile. Um, generally just tend to throw it out. Um, we use powdered colostrum because we like it, um, as we've messed up pasteurizing colostrum in the past before. Um, it's also just easier, um, because we do have three people that could be around myself, my dad, or my grandfather, my grandfather's job, um, probably from, you know, since he retired, which was in the early two thousands till about 2018 was getting all of these kids. And he still thinks it's his job. Um, you know, he's gotten a little older and whatnot, but just having a lot of different people that could be there. We just know to go get the powdered colostrum instead of having to figure out how to heat treat that colostrum. We're um, not set up for it. Also, when you think about it in terms of um, disease as well, um, there could be things that could be passed from colostrum if it's not heat treated properly. Um, so we do tend to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. So going on that, like making sure you heat treat your colostrum appropriately is um, highly important so you don't pass diseases. But also if you get it too hot, it's going to gel up. So then you're in trouble because you don't have anything to feed your babies. So what we found is you can use those sous vide cookers. Um, so we sent that to 140. So that gets the water around the colostrum to 140 degrees and keeps it circulating and warm. And it brings the milk up to about 135, 140 at that at the same time and let that sit and run for an hour. And that pretty much is our colostrum method. And then when that's when it goes to like regular milk, we'll do 165 on that as well. Oh, what a cool, what a cool use for that. Hmm. Yeah, it's super nice because we haven't had any issues with like if the stove gets too hot and certain areas of the classroom are hotter than others and it wants to gel up because once one portion goes, the whole thing gels up and then you're out of colostrum and it's a hot mess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe that should have been a Christmas present. Hey, I got one for my son for Christmas, but like... You might just have to borrow it. Yeah, well, he's he's like made amazing steak with it, so... Somehow I don't think he's going to let me have it for kidding season, but um, it might be. I I mean, you could, it's just, it's just circulating water around it. It's not like it's actually cooking the mouth. (laughs) Yeah. He really likes his steak. So (laughs) yeah, that's true. Cool. Very good. Very good. Well, I think, you know, I think one thing that is, has come out pretty clearly, there are different ways of getting healthy kids and healthy moms for sure. Um, yeah, I I really think again I think we've kind of shown kind of the gamut between three different perspectives here of how we do it all. There is no right, there is no wrong way to well, there's a wrong way to do it, but um, you know, there's many different methods, and I, if you do want some refinement on it, talk to your dairy goat mentor. You can message us as well, and we can we can try to help out there. Um, again, we we encourage you to. Um, you know, you can listen to us and say, okay, maybe some things you want to try. You might call us crazy, um, but we're just sharing our perspectives here. And we're thankful that um, you guys are giving us an audience to tell our perspective. Well, and one thing, you know, when you talk about things to take out to the barn, when you're 
actually in the in the heat of the kidding thing. Take your cell phone and a number of a mentor who doesn't care if it's two o'clock in the morning and you're calling and you just want somebody to help talk you down out of whatever tree you've climbed up in. Because there, there are times where I don't care how many goats you've pulled and how many kids you've delivered. You put your hand in there and you think, oh my gosh, I think it's a deformed kid because I feel three heads in six feet all at once and I can't get this sorted out. I mean, come on, you guys, would you agree that everybody feels that once in a while? Yeah. Yes. And we've all seen crazy things. It makes me think back to one where I saw um, the goat actually born inside out, Yeah, uh, yeah, which does happen. It's very strange, but um, you know, things, things are going to happen. Weird things will happen. Um, It's just kind of the circle of life. Um, But having a cell phone out there is great. Not only to call a mentor, but to call a veterinarian if you do need help. Um, And it's okay if you can't do something to call your veterinarian because they'll come and they'll charge you and they will uh, get your problem figured out in probably about 20 minutes or so. Right. And, and don't be afraid to say, no, this can't wait till tomorrow. I really need your help now. Yeah, or or if you have someone in the house that has smaller hands than you, um, don't you can ask a spouse or a child or something like that. I got called in so many times because my dad's hand was too big um, <laughs> through to, to help uh, goat in labor. Yeah, I'm lucky, C- Caroline, my 18 year old. She's pulled kids for me for several years because she just has perfect little hands and. You know, God bless her. She has a great way of being really calm in the midst of crazy. So she's like, nope, mom, I've got this. Just give me a few minutes. And she's great. So kids, kids can do a super job of helping to pull. Don't be afraid to ask. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to send her over to my place, uh, we start big kidding February 4th through the 12th. So if she wants to come take up residence at the Jodlowski place, just. (laughs) She probably would if she didn't have college, she probably would do that. Oh, shucks. (laughs) So Cameron, Uh, what are we going to talk about next week? Yeah, we're going to talk about um, the things. I'm trying to think how, how we worded this here in the text message. Um, Take the, the things that dairy goat breeders don't want to talk about, right? The things that dairy goat breeders don't want to talk about. So we're going to talking about some taboo issues, both in the show ring and in management. Um, just a host of things that kind of came from my, um, random Snapchat thoughts, um, on Monday. So just some, just some random taboo things that generally dairy goat breeders don't talk about in public. Um, we're going to air them out in the open and kind of talk about things. So try not to get too controversial, but yet maybe a little bit on the wild side for us. So, um, yeah, if there's absolutely. If there's something that you've always wondered about or want to talk about or think that we need to address in this, please let us know because, you know, maybe it's something we haven't thought about or, or a different perspective that we should, that we should address. So. We want yes, absolutely, absolutely on this year. One question we did have early in the podcast, and I said we we're going to do an episode on on it. One of our listeners asked about cold weather kidding. Um, is there any other cold weather kidding tips that we might have between this group here um, that that may come out? Because I do want to get that question addressed. 
you know, it, it for me, for cold weather kidding, I just try to make sure I don't have a heated barn. Uh, my barn's very old, so it's got some drafty areas. Try to make sure that I have those drafts plugged up and, um, you know, at least it's a dry place and, and out of the wind. Goats are a lot hardier than we give them uh, credit for, I think, sometimes. So, and having that warm water for the mom afterwards, I think, helps too. Yeah, emulating what Laura said, just keep them warm, especially those kids. Um, if you have like a heating pad you can put under them or a heat lamp or something, especially if we're getting sub-zero temperatures, it's really important because they will burn through any fat reservoirs that they have very quickly to keep warm. So we want to keep them warm and keep them fed and have enough energy to keep themselves warm. Yeah, those poor little babies. I, I know that one thing that I'm really lucky my brother-in-law Stanton built for me oh, many years back when we had boar goats. He found these really cool, they're blue plastic barrels. They're kind of tall, maybe shoulder height. And um, he cut a little door in them and put a hole in the top. And we hang a heat lamp so that the lamp can't be dropped down into the straw. Because I think there's always that concern about heat lamps and and uh, fires. But uh, we have it rigged up so those little baby goats can go inside their barrels, as we call it. And they keep really warm in there. And it's kind of amazing. They learn very quickly how to climb in and out of there. They'll come out and eat. And then they'll go right back in their little barrel. So finding a way yeah. to conserve heat is important. We have an extra large dog igloo that we purchased. And dad um, took the a little bit of the top out so we can hang a heat lamp in there. But you'd be surprised how many little kids you can fit in one of those igloos. <laughs> I bet. And we... And we have a giant box, literally, it's just called the box, um, that has all of its sides. It's nice and thick. Um, and then it's got um, two kind of at the top. It's got two sliding um, sections that we can slide in and out. So we can put a heat lamp through that crevice there and hang it up there. And we just have a very, very warm box. Literally, it's just called the box um, there. And we can probably get... During our peak, we probably get about like 20 kids in that box, 20 to 25. Catherine says 30. I don't want to think that I have that many goats, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, we, can get a lot, we can get a lot of kids in there and they just kind of pile up on each other there. But one thing you do have to watch is when they do start piling is suffocation, especially for those smaller oh. kids. Yes. Yeah. I can yeah. imagine. I hate to end the episode on that, on that, on that sad note. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you know, I guess that's a good thing, though, Cameron, to mention, you know, kidding, kidding is one of the most exciting times of the year, I think, for dairy goat breeders, you know, you see uh, fruit from the plans that you laid five months before, or sometimes much longer than that. And, you know, it's very exciting. But you also have to realize there's, it's, it's a hard time too, and um you know, every year I pray, just help us to get through without losing any moms or babies and, and, you know, let it, let it be okay. So I, I hope everybody has a safe and fruitful and exciting kidding season and that your next national champion or top 10 milker um, is born this spring. Yes, I, I agree as well. Before we go, um, Catherine, can you tell us where we can find your farm information and stay up to date with your farm? A little uh, shameless plug here for her since she did come on. So, Catherine. 
Um, you can find us on Facebook at Taylor Ridge Farms or our um, website that Cameron has lovely put together. It's taylorridgedairygoats.wix.com slash dairygoats. So you can see all our beautiful togs there. Thank you. I appreciate that. Thank you for the plug. Thank you for being on our podcast today, Catherine. See, it wasn't very painful, was it? No, it wasn't that bad. And I appreciated her perspective because she can bring a lot of the science and a lot of the veterinary knowledge that we might be able to articulate but not use the big words that she can. So I think it's wonderful. Cameron, where can people find us? Yep, you can find us on uh, the Facebook, Goat Gab. Uh, We're on Spotify. We're on... um, uh, Apple Podcasts, as well as our new location. Laura, where's our new location well, for our website? So um, those of you that have listened to us over a while have noticed that there's sometimes that we have some technical difficulties with our podcast, namely the podcast recording over on top of itself. And and I assure you that didn't happen in the studio. That's happened um, somehow in the upload. So we're moving our uh, podcast to a different hosting group. It's at... Um, Huh, I'll have to remember the name of it. It's Pod Sprout, Sprout Bean, something like that. Anyway, yeah, yeah. you will still be able to find it though on um, Google Podcasts and Apple and wherever you currently get it. It's just a little bit of a different hosting platform. So uh, we'll see how this works out for us. It shouldn't it shouldn't give you anything other than maybe a little higher quality listening experience. So thank you for your patience with us as we. Uh, learn new skills and uh, podcast recording is certainly a steep learning curve for me. So it's been a lot of fun. Thank you guys as always for joining us this week and uh, have, have a safe and happy time out in the barn with your goats. And thanks for being part of goat gab. We'll talk to y'all next week.